You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church Midtown. What is the church supposed to look like? The book of Titus shows us what it means to be changed people living together in peace. Welcome to our sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. Today's scripture reading is Titus 3, 12 through 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, because I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey, so that they will lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Good morning, everybody. It's a joy to be with you. Uh, My name is Nathan. I'm one of your pastors here. Let me just start by saying worship this morning was on point. I am filled to the brim and feel like I am ready to bring God's word. So may the Lord uh, be with me as I do that, be with all of us. I do want to just address something that's happened this week that you guys are well aware of. You've probably read stuff from the CDC about change of mandates and masks and all this stuff. And I just want you to know your elders are really encouraged by where we are. We're excited about what the future holds. Um, but we, we do recognize that people are in different places. And some of you are really excited to kind of move on and, and, you've, and you've made some of those decisions. And others, you're fearful or you have concerns. And so I, I would just want you to know that we recognize that. This week, the elders are going to meet. And we're going to talk about kind of the best way to move forward. So if you'd pray for us, we want to move forward in wisdom and in love for one another. So I want you to, to know that. Let's pray together. Fathers, we gather this morning as family, many of us as friends. Lord, we confess to you that we bring into this room a lot of things, anxiety and worries, hopes and distractions. Father, and I pray in this moment, as we have set under God's word in liturgy and we have set under God's word as we sing And as we sit under the word of God preached, Lord, that you would allow us to be present. Open our ears and our hearts to what the word would have to say to us. Draw us, Lord, into deep relationship with you, deep relationship with one another. Bring us conviction, Lord. May we experience you in fresh and real ways. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So this morning we are looking at a part of scripture that is often overlooked. So if you'll turn your Bible to Song of Solomon, I'm just kidding. Everybody calm down. Everybody calm down. This morning we're talking about uh, what's often known as the benediction of one of Paul's letters, Titus. And these are the closing words he gives to Titus um, as he wraps up this letter he gives to Titus and to the church in Crete. And I think often, whether we are reading the introduction of a letter from Paul or a conclusion, sometimes we can read over it quickly because we come to things like um, instructions, specific instructions or names. And we don't think that the benediction has a lot to offer. But as I've dug into this over the last few weeks, it has so much to offer us. There's so many words to chew on, things that allow us to grow as followers of Jesus. And this morning, the big idea from the benediction of Titus is that when the gospel is applied to our lives, it draws us into meaningful relationships with one another, and it moves us out, it leads us out into good works. And like all of Paul's letter, he closes this letter to Titus with words of greetings and instructions. 
Paul's letters are full of rich teachings. You think about the book of Romans and all the deep, rich truth that lies in that book. And Titus is the same thing. It gives us a lot as we've sat under this, this book for the last six weeks. But I want us to remember that this book is written to people, real people, everyday flesh and blood, salt of the earth, everyday kind of people. And these are more than faceless historical uh, names that we read. Um, I love church history and history in general, and I'll read a history book um, that's probably not exciting to a lot of people, but I really get into it. And I can, I can uh, read a name and not really attach it to a personality. But we need to be careful when we read these names that we've just read at the end of the book. These are real people, and they live real lives. And these were people that Paul knew and loved, and they are people who knew and loved Paul, this reciprocal mutuality of a relationship. I don't think I can overemphasize this point enough that Paul lived in deep and meaningful relationships with others. So let's look back at these two verses, verses 12 and 13. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, because I have decided to spend the winter there, diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey so that they will lack nothing. In these two short verses, we find five individuals that Paul lives in relationship with, specifically in ministry. He's doing ministry with these men. Now, let's, let's look at the first two. Let's look at uh, Artemis and Zenos. Zenos and Artemis, uh, there's honestly very little known. What you know of these two men, we just read just a second ago. Uh, there's a limited knowledge. Now, but what I will say is Paul says he is going to send either um, Artemis or Tychicus to Titus to relieve him of his ministry in Crete. Now, I think this is a really beautiful point. He hasn't decided which of these guys he's going to send. Both are trusted and faithful men, but he's going to send them so that Titus can come to Nicopolis to spend the winter there. This is a reflection of Paul's value of friendship and people. He's asking Titus, his trusted brother, to come and spend winter with him to enjoy food and fellowship, reflection on ministry. Who knows what kind of adventures they had in Nicopolis, but it, there's a value of friendship. So these two men, even though there's little known, we do know that they were trusted and proven in ministry, loved and cared for by Paul. Another name that you're more familiar with is Apollos. Apollos is mentioned several times in the New Testament. He was an Egyptian from Alexandria. Alexandria was one of the most important centers, specifically of learning, uh, in all of the world. And this is where Apollos was from. And you can tell that because of some of the things Scripture tells about Apollos. First of all, he was discipled by Aquila and Priscilla, which are other teammates and friends of Paul. You see this network of relationship of people living and doing ministry together. But we also know that Apollos was this fiery preacher. Look at Acts 18, verse 26. When he, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, after he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he had vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. So he has got a fire in his gut. And when he stands up and he preaches the word of God, he, the, the scriptures say he was eloquent. He was trained in oratory skills. And people listened and he could refute false doctrine and he could reveal that Jesus was the Messiah, that the the uh, uh, coming one, the coming Messiah. Now you go from Acts 18, where Apollos is kind of first introduced to Paul. We can fast forward about nine years where the book of Titus is happening. 
And Apollos is still faithfully proclaiming the gospel, faithful in the task of ministry. In fact, he is on the Isle of Crete as a missionary serving alongside his buddy, Zenos, the lawyer. And then we get to my boy, Tychicus, which is a fun word to say, Tychicus. I'm going to say it five or six times just because it's really fun. Um, Tychicus, that's, that's, that's two times, by the way. Tychicus was from what we know as modern-day Turkey. He was, uh, he's mentioned at least five different times throughout Paul's letters. And it's important to note that Tychicus was a faithful companion to Paul. He uses these words of intimacy and affection. He shows up several different times serving Paul in ministry. In fact, he, he sees him as a son and an in- indispensable part of the ministry in the Mediterranean world. In fact, Titus was an uncircumcised Greek. We know that from scripture. And he actually traveled with Paul and Barnabas early in their ministry to Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem had heard that they had heard that the gospel had come to the nations, that people were believing and following Jesus without first becoming a Jew. And they were concerned about that. So Paul and Barnabas, who had just been on the first missionary journey, bring with them Titus, this one from the nations who was uncircumcised. And as they're debating this, I can imagine Paul says, hey, Titus, stand up. Tell us about yourself. This is a living example of God coming to the nations. And that, that relationship between Titus and Paul only grew. In fact, as we look at the, Paul, the end of Paul's ministry, Titus is traveling to modern-day Croatia as a missionary. Now, you're going to expect me to say this, but as you noticed, the people around Paul are going all over the world. They're taking the gospel to all kinds of different places. And Titus truly is this amazing man who is faithful to the very end of Paul's life and ministry. Now, you might be asking, why, Pastor Nathan, are you spending so much time about these obscure people in the New Testament? I'm doing this because I want us to see the value Paul placed on people. Too often when we read the Bible, we forget that the people in its pages are ordinary folks, people with names and personalities, people with needs and wants and weaknesses, people who had jobs, families, and dreams, people like you and me. When we open the text and we read about the ups and downs of life and all the in-betweens from Genesis to Revelation, we are reading about people God has created, very much like us, people to to know and they were known by others. And I'm giving us a snapshot into Paul's relationship because Paul valued people. Paul needed people. Paul had meaningful relationships with others. And I think too often when I read the New Testament, I'm looking at things like Paul's on the move and he's like sharing the gospel and he's refuting false teachers and he's getting stoned and all those things are true. But he's not doing that alone. He's doing that in relationship with other people. In fact, a hallmark of Paul's ministry was community. He was always working side by side with other men and women who were following Jesus. If you read through the book of Acts and Paul's letters, we see 17 different variations of mission teams that he's working with. If you remember Acts 13, Paul goes out with Barnabas and John Mark, and quickly that changes. It's, it's Paul and Silas and then uh, Aquila and Priscilla, and all these people start moving in and out, this fluctuation. But when you look at it in its totality, there are 17 different mission teams he served on. And the combination of those teams, we see 34 different men and women who served with Paul over his life, showing us that Paul did life and ministry with others deeply. My point is that 
what Paul modeled for us is this one truth. We need each other. We need each other. Community is not an optional thing. It's not a cherry on the top of life. It is life itself. It holds value and meaning that we desperately need. Paul knew that he couldn't do life alone, and neither can you and I. You and I, as we experience the gospel for ourselves, we are drawn into meaningful relationships with others. Now hear me. I'm not saying that meaningful relationships just happen. They're like natural. No, they don't just happen. I'm not saying that they're easy because they take work. But what I'm saying is that they are beautiful and needed. What I'm saying is that we need friends. It's easy for us in this fast-paced, hectic life to feel like that we don't need other people. Now I know we know that we need companionship. We know that we need connection. We value community, right? That's like a, a buzzword in the Christian world, community. We know that we need friends. But too often we take what is less than instead of what we deeply desire We're too easily satisfied with a two-minute hot pocket version of relationships when what we desperately need is the four-hour feast of relationship with one another. We long to be filled to the brim with food and conversation that lasts into the wee hours of the night. I can still vividly remember eating a wonderful meal in France. You just prepare yourself. There's going to be a lot of envy from this story. Um, (laughs) I was in France with some of our missionaries. We're having a wonderful meal. It was as amazing as you would think it would be. And we had been at this table at a restaurant for more than an hour. So I was kind of anxiously looking for the the check to come. And my friend, our missionary who was with us, he turned to me and kind of leaned in and said, hey, they're not going to bring the check until you ask it because they expect us to stay all night. I'm sorry, what? They, they expect us to stay all night. What does that mean all night? See, no one was waiting for our table. I'm so used to being at Chili's or insert your cool favorite restaurant. Um, I, I throw out Chili's for my friend, Pastor Brad. And we, we're there for an hour and we, we see people over here waiting, right? It's like time to move. But in France, when you come to a restaurant, the table is yours for the night. The expectation in the culture of France is that you eat good food, you drink good wine, and you have wonderful conversations long into the night. Because it's a value that's slow baked into the French culture to slow down and to enjoy one another. But for me, in that moment, I wanted to check and I wanted to move on with other things we had in that day. Why? Because I valued efficiency over friendship. I valued being uh, known by others. What I valued more than being known by others is the time that I had during that day. What I learned that night and that I continue to learn to this very day is that at my very core, I'm a relational being. And so are you. We were made for relationship. We're made for relationship with God and we were made for relationship with one another. We need to know and be known by others. We are created in God's very image and God is a relational being. He is a, a, a God who is relational. He lives in perfect community with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a crazy thought to think about. Long before you existed, long before this world existed, God himself lived in perfect unity and relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when he created you and I, he created us to that very core to to long to be with people and enjoy people. 
In fact, when we think about our eternity, in just a snap of the fingers, we will be in heaven forever. And a core part of heaven is being together, being with God and being with one another. Jesus compels us to this deep type of meaningful relationship in John 15, starting in verse 12. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give it to you. This is what I command you, love one another. You see, in this passage, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he is speaking to us and he calls us his friends. Now, maybe for you, a bunch of random 90s CCM music pops into your head when you think about that. Or maybe we take light of this idea, Jesus is my friend, what does that mean? Like, that's not rich theological truth. It is. The gospel itself is the outworking of of relational friendship. We can be friends with God because we have been drawn near to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. When we say we are friends with God, it is so rich and so deep. He compels us in this passage to love one another and to be loved by one another. Because without deep friendship, life lacks meaning. Without good friends, we miss out on the good life, the kind of life that God longs for us to enjoy. This is not just a nice thought. It's not a fun bumper sticker. It's a hardwired fact that has been known for ages. Augustine knew it. Two things are essential in this world, life and friendship. Pastor J.C. Ryle knew it. The world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It is a dark place. The brightest beam in it is a friend. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. Did you read that? Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. Our very own Muhammad Ali knew it. Friendship is the hardest thing in the world to explain. It's not something you learn in school, but if you haven't learned the meaning of friendship, you really haven't learned anything. The Bible itself is carried along by this beautiful theme of friendship. Naomi had her Ruth. David had her Jonathan. Paul had his Timothy. Jesus had his Peter, James, and if you ask John, especially John, he's the beloved one, right? Friendship is at the core of Scripture because we all need deep and meaningful relationships. No one can carry the weights of life alone, and no one can enjoy life to its fullest without friends, true, deep friends. But friendships don't just happen. Friendships have to be cultivated. I don't know if you remember uh, what it was like to be a kid. I have thought about this often uh, as an adult, as I've struggled to have deep friends. It's like, man, I, maybe this wasn't your story. But I remember as a kid, like I had lots of friends, right? Or at least I had a couple good friends. And now that I watch my kids, I have uh, two little kids. And we'll go to Shelby Park. We live in Shelby Park. We'll go to Shelby Park. And on the playground, we'll see just some random strange, stranger kids we've never seen before. And my kids will run up to them and say, hey, would you want to be my friend? And then I watch them for hours just enjoy companionship and laugh. And it's the most amazing thing. And I think to myself, why is friendship as adults so hard? 
so difficult. There's lots of answers for that. I don't know most of them, but one reason is life's just got complicated. We've gotten complicated. Our emotions around one another have gotten complicated. But I love what the author Hugh Black says. He gives us this secret to friendship. Are you ready? He says, we have few friends because we're not willing to pay the price for friendship. The secret of friendship is the secret of all spiritual blessing. The way to get is to give. You see, the first step toward meaningful relationships with others starts with pursuit. Pursuit as defined in the act of moving toward another person. We will experience deeper friendship if we take the initiation, the initiative to move to another person. People who are good friends often have good friends. And we can't expect to have good friends until we start cultivating our life with the lives of others. Now, I know that this is difficult and it's not easy. And maybe there's been disappointment in your life of friendship. But I want us to stop for a second and I want to give you a few suggestions of what it looks like to cultivate friendships. Number one, friendship starts with you. I know we all want to be pursued. And listen, that is a valid desire. It is a a core desire of life, right? To be seen, to see someone who is looking for you, right? This is a summation of the gospel. We're, We're seeing someone, experiencing Jesus, and he is someone who is looking for us. And we want that experience with other people. But the reality of life is we have deeper friendships when we begin to initiate those with others. So you be a friend to others that you want to experience for yourselves. And I think a key to friendship is taking small steps of thoughtful acts. What does that mean? It means when you're going throughout your day and you think of a friend, just text them, call them. Do not wait to bring encouragement or love or affection to a later date. Do it immediately. Be a friend in the moment. It means um, picking up the phone and checking in with friends. It means bringing people to dinner in your house. It can mean all kinds of things. But friendship is cultivated from small, thoughtful acts. Third thing, when we're talking about friendship starts with you, don't be afraid to have a DTR. Do you guys know what a DTR is? You're like, dude, this dude's 40. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, A DTR is define the relationship. Now you're thinking like, that's super weird. Okay, it can be. There was a, a, a season in my life three or four years ago where I was kind of burning out. Been here a long time, but... Uh, even though life and ministry was good here, there's a lot of really painful things happening at home. And when I looked around, one of the core things that was really difficult in life is I had a lot of uh, friendly faces and a lot of friendships, but I wasn't really journeying with life with a lot of people. And there were two men who I knew loved me. So I asked them to coffee and I had a DTR. I literally said, hey guys, would you be my friends? And then I explained what that meant. Like, I need people that I can do life with. I can, I can fight in the trenches, that we've got each other's backs, that we're checking in on one another. And for the last three years, most weeks, we still get together and have coffee. We still get together and ask people, each other hard questions. But that would not have happened unless I came to the end of myself and I said, hey, would you be my friend? Maybe what you need to do is have a DTR with somebody and just be someone's friend. Number two, go deep with a few I often think about friendship like this. It's like a a submarine versus a cruise ship. Submarine versus cruise ship. You see the submarine here and the cruise ship in the background. Too often we view friendship in our current culture like a cruise ship. 
full of hundreds of people. It's this huge party. And you look around the deck of the cruise ship and you see a bunch of faces you know, maybe some names you know, but you don't really know anybody. Or you don't really feel known. You can be in this massive crowd of people and feel absolutely alone. You can feel lonely. But what friendship really is, it's like a submarine. You see, friendship is like packing a handful of people in a tight space of a submarine, and it's, it's about going deep. It's about living life together and fighting for one another and, and not allowing friendship to be convenient, but it's a commitment to one another. Now, if you take that analogy a little further, which I think is helpful, if you get in a submarine with a, a couple people, handful of people, and you go deep, you can go to some really dark and deep places together and fight for one another. It's beautiful. It's also hard. People get stinky. You get low on food. I've probably taken this too far here. But it allows you to do life together and fight for one another in deep places, but it doesn't mean it's easy. What does that mean? It means sometimes friends are encouraging and sometimes friends call us out. You want to know if you have a friend, you have people in your life who are calling out sin, who are giving you a vision for good and glorious days ahead. That's what happens when we have friends who can go deep with us. Listen, it's fine to have acquaintances. It's good to have acquaintances. But acquaintances are not the same thing as friends. You see, in this world that we live in that is driven by a a Facebook or an Instagram, we can fool ourselves into thinking we're surrounded by people who love us. But that is not the same as friendship. Thirdly, when we talk about what does it mean to cultivate friendships, meaningful friendships take work. So I think about friendships as cultivating a garden. A few years ago, uh, we had a garden at our house. Don't think garden, think like garden. We live in Shelby Park, so we have a little raised bed. It's like four by eight. And we planted beautiful flowers, you know, tomatoes and peppers and all that stuff. And my assumption was it rained, the sunshine, that's what plants need. And I would go out and I would pick the harvest, right? Well, when I went out, everything was dead. (laughs) There were weeds everywhere. It did not go well. And in a similar way, that's how friendships work. You you need to cultivate friendships. And now this year, we have the same plants. I water them every day or every other day. I pull out the weeds. I'm cultivating that. And my anticipation is that I will reap a harvest from the work that I've put in. To have meaningful relationships take work and effort and time and space in your life. We share meals together. We do vacations together. We create space in our calendars to see each other face to face. We are present in the the glorious things of graduation and and, and births. We're in the difficult things of divorces and deaths. And we're in all the in-betweens of the mundane life. That's what it means to be a friend. We need to remember that we always give time to the things we value. So if you say you value friendship, but you have no time for it, you need to ask yourself, do you truly value meaningful relationships? Now, as we go back to Titus 3, we have seen that the gospel applied to our lives produces meaningful relationships. But it also leads to acts of good works within these relationships and really onward to others. Look back in verse 13. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey so that they will lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will be so they will not be unfruitful. So one of the major themes of Titus, and you've you've seen this and heard this from several of our pastors, is this idea of good works. 
Now, it's not good works to, to prove ourselves or to experience salvation. If you actually read Titus chapter 3 at the beginning part of the chapter, Paul makes it very clear that we are not doing good works for salvation, that our good works are a result of the salvation we have experienced. But this idea of good works pops up six different times in three chapters. Paul is really hammering this idea. Christians who've experienced the gospel do good works. It's a result of their life. And specifically in the benediction, what Paul is referring to is meeting the urgent needs of two missionaries, Zenos and Apollos. These were men who were on Crete, the island of Crete. They were moving from church to church, from location to location, declaring the gospel. And historically during that time period and for much of the church, men and women who travel and do ministry were welcomed into homes. It's a value of hospitality. I realize in our culture, we have hotels and there's lots of restaurants, but in a lot of part of the world, that is not something that's uh, present everywhere. And a value of the church was opening your home, giving your best food, your best bed, your best room, and, and giving it sacrificially. And what Paul is, is telling Titus, he's not just telling Titus to meet the needs of these two men. He's telling Titus as a leader of the church to lead the church in so, showing acts of mercy and good work. And that is our call as a church, that we need to meet the urgent needs of the Christians around us, to, to needs around us. We need to be committed to sacrificial acts of service. A marker of a, of a Christian, of a follower of Jesus, is meeting needs of those around us. And really what this is, is an outworking of what the early church was called to do. Acts chapter 2, verse 44 now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Now this may seem like a radical idea. We come to this passage a couple different times and we're like, Ooh, that's real hard. But it's not that radical. It's ordinary Christian life. Now there may be a time when God calls you to sell a car or to sell a property and give it to people in need. But I really believe what it means to live out our faith in good works normally are these everyday accessible acts of mercy. It's things like picking up a phone and, and texting or calling a friend when they come to mind, or it's showing up at someone's house unannounced. Some of you are like, oh, don't do that. <laughs> With a meal or a gift card and saying, hey, I thought about you. You're loved. It might be, I mean, babysitting for a foster family who is overwhelmed and they need a break and you just show up. You don't have to be asked. You see people, you see them in their need. Or it might mean driving 10 hours round trip to go to the funeral of a woman you've never met. You're like, what? What's he talking about? That's a, that's a personal experience. My mom died 18 months ago, one of my darkest days. And I go to the funeral and Right there are five of my closest friends, fellow elders within our church. And these men had gotten in a car and they'd driven 10 hours round trip simply to give me a hug. Friends, that is a good work. That's a good work to the church. When we live out our faith in meaningful relationships, we will live this kind of sacrificial, hospitable, overflowing life of mercy and good works toward others. But our mercy and good works are simply an outworking of the mercy and good work we have experienced in Jesus. We can sell a property or a car. We can, 
We can get into a vehicle and, and drive long distances. We can show up and be sacrificial because we have experienced sacrifice like none other, like nobody can ever comprehend. That's what makes the gospel such good news. It's something we experience and changes us, but we can't keep it in. It flows out in acts of love and service to those around us. Acts 3, verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy. We don't live out this to muster up our faith or to be stronger or to prove ourselves or to earn anything. We live lives of mercy and good works to those around us because we have experienced the good work of Jesus. The primary mercy and good work has come through the cross, the greatest act of friendship we could ever imagine. And I don't know where you find yourself today. Maybe you're lonely. Statistically speaking, America is a lonely place. Andy Crouch, who is a Christian thinker, he wrote that America is a great place to have power, but a really difficult place to be a person. It's a hard place to be seen and to be known. So you might be lonely today, and maybe COVID has expedited that loneliness, or maybe it's heightened that loneliness, but we were a lonely people long before COVID happened. Or maybe you're experiencing shame of the past or of of who you are, or maybe you've tried friendship before. Listen, I invested in people. I was fully present, and then they moved on. Sojourn can be a difficult place, can be a transient place, and you feel like, I just can't do it anymore. Or maybe you've been hiding because of a sin in your life and you feel isolated and alone. Or maybe for you, you simply feel like friendship has passed you by, that no one knows you or they want to know you. But I want you to stop. I want you to listen that you have a friend who is more true, who is more present than you can ever comprehend. We will spend all of eternity sitting at the feet of Jesus, trying to understand his love and pursuit of us, seeking to understand his friendship. You have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I love how one pastor put it. He said, what if you could have a friend who knew you better than anyone, better than you even knew yourself? And what if knowing everything, he still loved you and even liked you? And what if you could have a friend who, by this, his very relationship with you, would transform you to become a better friend to others. You can. His name is Jesus. He had called the friend of sinners. Friends, you and I are sinners. Let's own it. Because Jesus came for you and I, not to just save us, but to enjoy us and for us to enjoy friendship with God. This morning, as we think about friendship, let's start with the most important, most meaningful, most accessible friend you could have, and it's Jesus. He knows you. He sees you. You may be sitting in your seat feeling like no one knows who you are. No one sees you deep down. He sees you. He sees you. And we have a church of people who are fighting to know one another. may not feel like that but we're all fighting to know and to be known. And you have a savior who knows you backwards and forwards, inside and out. He wants to be with you now, right now, in this moment. Dear friends, you are seen and fully known by a God who loves you. And that is beautiful. 
beautiful news. And that's why we can be a beautiful church that loves together, that fights for one another, and experiences the joy of friendship. And today, as we partake in communion, we are reminded that the cross has allowed us to be friends with God and friends with one another. You have this little cup, if you'll take it. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the the bread and he broke it as a visual symbol that my body is broken for you, act of friendship. And in the same way, he took the cup and he says, drink it. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for you, act of friendship. And as often as you eat and you drink, we are experiencing the Lord and we are being reminded of the promise of his return. So friends, as we reflect on the beauty of friendship with God and friendship with one another, let us be reminded that the cross and the resurrection have drawn us near. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn in Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.